God is good, amen? Do you say sure? <laughs> very good, amen. Good isn't good enough when it comes to God. It's very good. Amen. Book of Luke. The book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. We look at God's word today. In the book of Luke, we have an account of the Annunciation of the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 1, in verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, excuse me, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angels, Whoa! How can this be? Since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who will be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, also has conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Uh, so much here, just in this one passage about Jesus. But uh, one thing I want to point out and bring, draw your attention to is you notice there are several titles here of Jesus. Um, in verse 31, the angel says, when he's born, you will call his name Jesus. Now, that's his proper name. But in verse 32, he is called the son of the highest. Of course, the highest meaning God, right? And then in verse 35, he is called the son of God. So clearly, according to this annunciation, this this person being born is more than a, a mere human being, but he's a divine person. He's the son of the highest. He is the son of God. Yet notice this. He says here in verse 32, after referring to Jesus uh, and calling him the son of the highest, and he says this, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, who is his father? But he's the son of the highest. He's the son of God. Is David God? Well, no. So he's the son of God. He's the son of the highest, but he's the son of David. The offspring of, of David, or as it says in Isaiah, the root or the branch. The branch of David. So right in this passage, we see both the deity as well as the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think there are many here that need to be convinced about the the deity of Jesus Christ. 
Now there, because I think many of us assume or, or believe that Scripture teaches that Jesus was truly God. But what we need to understand is that He was truly man, and His manhood is not incidental to His mission. In other words, to do what God had, had sent Him to do, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world, He had to be truly man. Truly a human in every sense of that word in order to fulfill his calling and mission as Messiah. So let's look at a a few reasons Jesus had to be both God and man. The first reason is the obvious one. and That is to say, Jesus had to be both God and man in order to provide salvation for us. As a man, Jesus had to both obey the law and suffer in man's place for man's violation of the law. Jesus lived the perfect life, amen? But he lived that life as a man. He lived it as a man. He, it said, well, here, we'll, we'll look at a few other scriptures. Look at Galatians quickly, if you want to turn there. Galatians chapter 4. Paul says this. He says that, Galatians 4, four it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, God's Son, born of a woman. Well, it must be the woman's son too. Born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So Jesus was born as a man, so he could be born under the law. And as a man, he fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of that law. He obeyed the law perfectly. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we partake of that obedience. When we are justified in God's eyes, it's because the obedient, the righteousness of Jesus, the obedient Uh, acts of Jesus, are then imputed to the believer. And the believer is righteous because the believer's representative, Jesus, has righteously fulfilled the law in our place. We think of Jesus dying in our place, which is true. But he lived in our place. He lived in our place. Look at Romans 5, if you will. Romans chapter 5, where Paul is... Comparing and contrasting the first man, Adam, with the second man, capital M, Jesus. And he says this, he says, um, in verse 19, no, we'll start in 18. No, we'll start in 17, just kidding, no. no. 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense... Judgment came to all men. Who's that one man who, who, who offended? Adam, right? Resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, who's that man? Jesus. Came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, Jesus, many were made righteous. And I'm just going to read the next two verses because I like them. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. 
But where sin abounded, what did grace do? Much more abounded. Much more. So that as death reigned, excuse me, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As a man, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law in the place of his people. Thus he was born under the law. He had to be born a human and experience law-keeping, if you will, from, from a purely hum, human perspective. But Jesus also died for his people because his people did not perfectly keep the law. And so there's a penalty for the violation of the law. And the scripture says the wages of sin, or those violations, the wages of sin is what? Death. So Jesus thus dies in our place, but he dies as a man. The word of God says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So as man violated the law, the first man, so the restoration had to be by a man. And the atonement was by blood, but it had to be the blood of a man. But not just any man, it had to be a perfect man, a law-keeping man. And the only man that ever kept the law was Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? But Jesus was God, and so his obedience was of infinite value. He obeyed the law not just for himself, he obeyed the law for his people. And so his, his righteousness then is imputed and given to them when they receive him as Savior. So Jesus had to be both God and man in order to provide salvation for us. But he also had to be God and man in order to be our sympathetic high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Book of Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting or proper for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. All of one what? We're going to see in a minute. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. This is a quote from Psalms, where a, a messianic psalm, where Jesus is speaking through the psalmist. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to sing in the congregation. Now that's cool. Jesus singing in our midst. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, the children being us, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. 
Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus lived living as a man means that he knows not just theoretically, but he knows practically, truly, humanly, experientially what it is like to live in a fallen world. He knows fatigue and hunger. He knows, he knows all of the things that we experience living in a fallen world. And because of that, he is able to sympathize with our suffering. In chapter 4, it says in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. In other words, to put it in the affirmative, we do have a high priest who can sympathize. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the the reality of Jesus' humanity is then a basis for this exhortation to come to the throne of grace to receive help. Because the one sitting on the throne understands. In principle, there's nothing that we experience, there's no trial that we experience that Jesus cannot relate to, in principle. Now you're probably thinking, well, you know, Jesus wasn't married to my spouse, because Jesus wasn't married. (laughs) So that doesn't work. Jesus is married to us. You talk about a lousy spouse. (laughs) Come on, man. Jesus understands. He gets it. And so the throne of grace, the the, the throne on which he sits, is not simply a throne of judgment, although it is that. But for his people, it's a throne where we can come and make supplication. And the one that we're talking to is not cold and indifferent and aloof. It's somebody who's entered in. I mean, you know, the birth of Jesus... Is, is such an astounding thing that if you really stop and meditate on it, that, that the God that created the universe, I mean, you know how big the universe is? I mean, the more we learn about it, it's like there's not just millions, but there's billions and there's godzillions and there's mega millions. No, that's a lottery. Just kidding. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, it's so huge. I mean, to think of the infinite wisdom and power of Almighty God and that and then he condescends and humbles himself to be a man. I mean, it, 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 it fathom. I mean, it, it blows the mind. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we appeal to in our prayers. This is the God who who is willing to help because he knows not only because he knows all things but he knows even by his own flesh and blood experience what it is like to struggle against sin and so we we are exhorted come to that throne 
Come to that Jesus who understands because He, like you, has flesh and blood. I mean, Jesus is glorified now, but He still has His humanity. He still has His humanity. He's our brother. And He sympathizes with us. He needed to be human in order to Develop that sympathy, if you will. But he he had to be God to be faithful. Because only God could handle all of the the multitude of petitions and needs of all of God's people. No man could do that. Thirdly, Jesus had to be both God and man because he gave us a perfect example of humanity. In 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to turn there, we're close, being in Hebrews... 1 Peter chapter 2, right before Hebrews, right after Hebrews, I can't find 1 Peter. Where am I? There it is. 1 Peter 2, Peter's exhorting the church at a time of trial and, and persecution. And he says, uh, he's exhorting us to, if necessary, to, to suffer wrongfully. And he says, um, verse 20, For what credit is it if when you, 2.20, are beaten for your faults, and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered, or suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judged righteously. Look at uh, the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, we are exhorted to put away, in chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, we're we're exhorted to put away all anger and, and wrath and Slander and all these dark emotions. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And over and over and over in Scripture, Jesus is the example. We are to walk like Jesus. Amen? He is our pattern. He is the one we are to imitate. And He had to be a human. He had to be a man so that we had a literal human pattern to follow. Now, I think some of us find it hard to relate to Jesus because we don't properly weigh His humanity. And we say, well, He was God, so it was easy. He was God, so it was easy to resist sin. Or He was God, therefore, this and that. But that's not really, as you you look at Scripture, as you look at the Gospels, that's not the case. His humanity was real in every sense of the word, except for sin. And so the trials, uh, the, the inward conflicts, the inward suffering, the physical suffering, it was all very real. And And some people would even argue that it was worse for Him than for us. Because he was absolutely pure. 
And the sense of revulsion that absolute purity has in the light of sin is painful. Do you ever see anything hideous and you feel that sense of revulsion? Kind of like the mirror in the morning, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh! Just kidding. That inner revulsion in the face of evil, you've ever experienced it? Well, imagine if you were absolutely pure and absolutely holy. That revulsion would be even more intense. So, you know, it says in Peter talks about when Lot was in Sodom and how his righteous soul was vexed by the sin around him. Do you ever get grieved by the sin you see in our culture? You see the abortion and the pornography and all this stuff. It, it can grieve you. Well, imagine if you were sinless. How much greater would be that grief? His purity and his deity did not lessen his suffering. It intensified it. But he provided a a perfect example for us how we ought to walk. And it was a human example because he was truly a man. But it was perfect because he was truly God. Fourthly and lastly, Jesus had to be both God and man in order to reveal God to us more intimately. Look at John chapter 1. I don't know about you, but I love the book of John, and I love chapter 1. I could just read it over and over and over. As a matter of fact, I do. I read it all the time. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this, this person called the Word, or the Lagos, is someone who was with God, so he was distinct from God, yet at the same time, he was God. Verse 3, we learned that this word, this Lagos, is the creator. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 4, we learned that he's self-existent. In him was life. He had the fountain of life in himself, and he gave life to all other things. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. And he goes on, and he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of his fullness, we have all received even grace for grace, or grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, and some of your virgins might say the only begotten God, who was in the bosom of the Father, He has expounded him. Expounded him. So it is the the Jesus being both God and with God, of course, knew God, right? He knew God in a way that no human, mere human, could know God because he was God himself. 
But in order that we might know God better and that we might know God more intimately, that we might be able to relate to God, if you will, in a better way, he took flesh, and flesh there is, a, is shorthand for true humanity. He took, took flesh upon himself. And so that as a man, he reveals the Father in ways that we as human beings can see. This is how John, John puts it in his first epistle, if you want to turn to 1 John. This is what he says regarding the incarnation of the Word. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, Concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You see this? These terms, we have seen, we have heard, we have handled, we have touched. Because this word, this lagos, This eternal life, which is Jesus, eternal life is not a thing, it's a person, it's Jesus. This eternal life was incarnate so that we could see it, we could hear it, we could touch it. No man has seen God at any time in his essence. But we have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when God removes the veil from the human heart, that's what is seen in the gospel. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the exact representation, or as the King James says, the express image of God's person. In other words, he is the ultimate and the best Picture, expression, representation, whatever word you want to use, of what God is really like. If we want to know God, we must look at the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so God, in His grace, giving us grace upon grace, was willing to condescend and take humanity upon Himself for this purpose, that we might know Him. This is the ultimate goal of the Incarnation. The incarnation accomplishes many things. But the ultimate goal is the restoration of the broken fellowship that occurred all the way back in the garden. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the basic story of the Word of God. We fell and we alienated ourselves from God. We broke relationship with Him. God, through His people Israel, and then through His church, has now made a way through the Messiah for us to have that relationship restored. 
Jesus has done everything necessary that we might be reunited to God again. Amen? And have a living, vital, real relationship with God. John says this in verse 3, and we'll close with this. After saying that we've seen this, he says, That which we have seen, in verse 3, and heard, we declare to you. Why? That you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We have seen, we have heard the word of life. And we're telling you about what we have seen and heard, we the apostles, so that you can enter in to fellowship with God. That's salvation. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with Jesus Christ, who is the eternal life. So what's the application of this sermon? I could say many things. Um, but I'll just say this, and we'll wrap it up. Um, I'm not like Allison, she's a Scrooge. <laughs> That's what you said. You said it. You, I heard it. Okay. I, I love this time of year. I love the fact that I can go into a store and hear them singing about Jesus. Okay, I love that. It's a, one of the rare times uh, in our in our culture when people can talk about Jesus and their songs on this secular radio about Jesus. Um, and I like all that. What I don't like is the commercialism. Right? And it, it seems like it just gets worse and worse and worse. And, um, you know, we talk about the joy of Christmas. And uh, you, you ever go to, like, Walmart? <laughs> like, you know... Couple days before Christmas, do you see the joy of Christmas? No. What do you see? Terror, panic, depression, a lot of a lot of bad stuff going on there. You know, um, and people, many people don't have what the season is supposed to represent uh, because they're trying to fill it with things, more things, just things, things, things. You know, and uh, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with giving one another presents. That's that's nice. We should bless each other that way. But those things will never, will never give us joy. They'll never give us real happiness. It doesn't matter how many, you know, cool iPads, iPhones, gadgets, things, whatever you have. It doesn't matter if your screen's 60 inches versus 30. It's not joy. Everything that we get new this year is going to be old by next year. You know? Um, so, you know, what brings real joy? What brings real peace? Fellowship with the Lord. I mean, we can make the Christian life so complicated. But, as, as Augustine said to God in a prayer, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. And if we're restless, if we're if we're trying to find joy in in uh, things, even in people, I mean, family's wonderful. I love my family, and well, some of my family anyway. No, I'm just kidding. I love my family, and I love the family get-togethers, and that's all great. But but there's a place in me that's empty unless it's filled with Jesus. You know what I mean? And the and the beauty of salvation is that that's what Jesus accomplished by becoming a man. 
He made a way that I could be restored to God and God could then come and dwell in my heart through His Spirit and we could have fellowship. Fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. That's the joy we are celebrating at this time of year. Amen? Let's stand together. Lord, you are so good. You are very good. You are exceedingly good. And we don't have words, and and our words really can't capture, and our minds can't even embrace how wonderful you are and what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your humility in becoming a man. We thank you that you understand us, that you know our trials. I pray that you would, through your Spirit's work, just help us see your throne for what it is, a throne of grace, a throne of mercy. And that as your people, we would come to your throne daily and fellowship there with you. We thank you, Lord Jesus for being born, for dying, for rising from the dead, and now sitting on that throne. We love you. We adore you. As our King, the Son of the Highest, the Son of the Almighty, the Son of David. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.